Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Hashtags are everywhere on social media. Have you seen Stop Asian Hate in your news feeds? The hashtag popped up in reaction to the shooting death of eight people in Georgia last week. Six were women of Asian descent who worked at massage spas. The alleged gunman is a white man. But this story is just one of many incidents against Asians in the U.S. since last March. During the pandemic, incidents began after political rhetoric referred to COVID as, quote, the Chinese virus. Think this doesn't happen in our state? This is what Attorney General William Tong shared with me last May. In my home city of Stamford, um, a Chinese-American woman who's been in this country for decades um, was checking out at a grocery store and um, the, the grocery store clerk asked her, when was the last time you went to China? Are you from China? And as she was trying to answer the questions politely, uh, the clerk grabbed a, a spray bottle of disinfectant and sprayed her and her groceries. Again, that was in Stamford, Connecticut in May of 2020. Coming up, Attorney General William Tong joins us. He's Chinese-American and issued a statement after the Georgia shooting saying in part, quote, vile and racist hate speech puts Americans and families like mine at risk and it has to stop. Why are hate crimes climbing? You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. I want to welcome our guest to the show on Zoom today, Nare Kim, Associate Director at the Asian and Asian American Studies Institute at UConn, and she's Assistant Professor in Residence. Nare, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Also with us, Glenn Matoma, Director of Dot Impact at UConn's Human Rights Institute. He's a persistent professor of human rights and education. And Glenn was back on the show in 2017 when he told us about his grandparents who were sent to the Topaz Japanese internment camps in Utah. Glenn, welcome back. Thanks, Lucy, for, uh, for having me back. Uh, and I appreciate you having this important conversation. Uh, now, if you're listening and you are a member of the Asian or Pacific Islander community in our state and you want to talk about uh, this rise in hate incidents against uh, Asians in our country, you can join us as well. Again, the number 888-720-9677. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Anare, I, I mentioned the shooting deaths in Georgia, six of the eight victims were of Asian descent. And this has this event has really brought attention to this rise of violence against Asian residents in the U.S. A lot of uh, people sharing uh, their fear of, of going outside or going to the grocery store um, because they're Asian. I'm wondering if you can describe how these incidents have impacted you. How do you feel when you're out in public? Um, thanks for asking, Lucy. I mean, in the beginning, I was just angry and afraid. 
in the beginning, I was just thinking, um, how do I deal with this issue? I'm afraid to walk outside. I am a small, petite Asian American woman. And I was just afraid. But now I I wonder um, what I would teach, for instance, my one-year daughter who would later face this question, do I tell her to own her anger and to voice um, that anger to other people if other people are trying to accost her? Or do I want to tell her to actually duck, escape, because we now just want to stay alive? I, I wanted to bring up that incident uh, that happened the very day of the Atlanta shootings. There was a 75-year-old San Francisco woman of Asian descent. She was punched in the face randomly by a white man while she was waiting at a traffic light, and she fought back. She picked up a wooden plank, and she hit him over and over again until the police came. Again, uh, these incidents seem to be happening more and more. Uh, Glenn, what was your reaction to the Atlanta shootings and this other incident that I just mentioned? Yeah, thanks, Lucy. I mean, I think um, clearly it's just heartbreaking. Um, and it's heartbreaking on top of uh, a year of heartbreak that we've all suffered through under the coronavirus, but it's compounded within our community by the fact that we know that the health concerns of the virus also came with this social stigma fed by divisive political rhetoric that made uh, Asian Americans and others of Asian descent the legitimate targets of harassment, or, or they legitimized us as, as targets of harassment. And, and that kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, violence is obviously the most traumatic, the the, the most terrible, but I, but it's insidious too. It uh, the the kinds of um, uh, comments um, that uh, that uh, that you alluded to at the beginning from from um, uh, William Tong's uh, experience, but also just the, the the kind of sideways looks, the the drawing away, the uh, the harsh glares. All of that has ramped up over the past year and I, I think has, has created an enormous amount of psychological pressure on the, on the community. So when events like this happen, um, it's just utterly devastating. I played that soundbite from Attorney General Tong back in May uh, just to show that this kind of behavior, Connecticut's not immune from that or these hate incidents. Uh, what have you been hearing from members in your community, Glenn? I'll start with you. Sure. Well, you know, at the university, obviously, we're hearing a lot from our from our students, and uh, the the students are feeling this uh, this incredible pressure. We have an incredibly diverse Asian and Asian American population at the university. Uh, many of them are. Um, you know, international students from abroad, uh, they have for a long time uh, felt excluded and marginalized within the larger community and the intensity with which it's ramped up over the past year has just made it so much harder for them to go about the business of, uh, of, of, of learning, which is, which is what they're, they're here to do. And then for our Asian American students, many of them talk about the pressures on their families back home. Again, we're, we're in a kind of Russian nesting doll of, of crises that uh, many of the, our, our students' parents are business owners who are hit hard by the pandemic. 
And then on top of that, to have to worry about whether or not their business will be targeted uh, with racist harassment uh, has created uh, an enormous uh, amount of pressure. Again, many of them have closed their businesses in this in this time period. Um, and the students themselves, uh, therefore, have to deal with that in addition to all the pressures of online learning. So it's, it's really been a lot. Now, Ray, uh, I keep referring back to the Atlanta shootings, but this wave of hate incidents against people of Asian descent has been increasing over the last year. There's a national organization, Stop Asian American Pacific Islander Hate. Uh, they're tracking these incidents. And from March of 2020 to the end of last month, 3,795 incidents are reported to this group. Why do you think these uh, events aren't getting the kind of attention that the Atlanta uh, shootings have? Historically, Asian Americans have been racialized to be invisible. Um, they are perpetually seen as foreigners. They are currently seen as the model minority. So when the people are invisible, the violence that they face is also rendered invisible. It is really heartbreaking, um, to borrow um, Glenn's words, to, to see that it actually took this murder of six Asian American women for the nation to notice the violence that has been going on for the past year and also that has been going on from the beginning of the history of Asian migration to the United States. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Uh, Shirley's calling in from Woodbridge. Shirley, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for having this program, speaking about this incident. It's so important. How uh, has this to... impacted you, Shirley? Yeah, um, this has been a really trying time for those of us in the Asian American community. And I think um, it is reminiscent to what happened during the Me Too movement, where so many women were silently suffering for so long. And then it took an incident for people to share their um, anguish. And uh, I think that that's what we're seeing right now. Why are so many Asian Americans who hadn't spoken up before now coming online and sharing their anguish? Um, and I think it's because the incident in Atlanta wasn't initially just called out as a hate crime, that there were excuses made to make it seem like it wasn't racially motivated. And it was the last straw for a lot of people to feel like they can finally stand up and call out that we should see racially motivated attacks for what they are and not make excuses. So I think that that and, and then seeing people sharing their feelings are empowering other Asian Americans to share their anguish. So I think that it's um, a very cathartic time. And um, I would recommend for people who aren't in our community to reach out and understand our stories because like what was mentioned there's this idea that we are the minority and we all have the same shared experience and that's not true every asian american has a different story that needs to be understood um, and we could definitely use allies to understand and be our allies 
Shirley, thank you for sharing that. Glenn, can you respond to what, what Shirley shared, that this is a moment where uh, people in the, the Asian and Pacific Islander community feel like they can now speak up. This has been happening, and they're looking for people to understand uh, their common experience. Uh, absolutely. Thanks, Shirley, for this this call. And I, I think that's right. And, uh, and of course, I think many, many Asian Americans uh, have been speaking up for a long time, right? The, the end Asian hate hashtag was not a, a new hashtag uh, last week. It had been around. Um, we have a, a um, artist in residence at, uh, at UConn this, uh, this semester, Mike Kao, who has the I am not a virus hashtag art project that he's been working on. But I think it is a moment, and, and, and I really appreciate the analogy to the Me Too movement, surely, uh, of, uh, of, of national awakening to this, to, to beginning a conversation to grapple with this history of invisibility that, that Nare highlights. I also think, you know, it, it, it's, uh, the, it's more than just an analogy, right? That, that the fact that these were uh, six Asian women who were targeted is not an accident either. And the overlapping connection between um, misogyny and racism that are at the heart of this also is something that that needs to be needs to be discussed. Um, uh, you know, there's also a, a working class uh, uh, bias here. There is an anti-migrant uh, bias here. There is an anti-sex work bias here. That's all at work in, in in this incident, and that that really shows how complex these overlapping layers of marginalization and invisibility are, uh, that we have a moment when the, the world is paying attention, uh, when we can begin to surface this hidden history, this long hidden history, um, and grapple with it, I think is a, is a, is a much needed um, addition to our collective uh, moment of reckoning with the difficult racial history of this country. Again, you can join us at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You just heard Glenn Matoma, director of Dot Impact at UConn's Human Rights Institute. Also, Nare Kim is here, associate director at the Asian and Asian American Studies Institute at UConn. Uh, Nare, let's talk about uh, the history uh, of uh, violence against Asians in our country. You know, recently, uh, many people point to the political rhetoric coming out of the former administration. But when we look at the history of, of immigration in this country, can you uh, give walk us through what happened to uh, Chinese immigrants uh, when they were here in the 1800s? Sure. Um, the history of Asian migration has a lot to do with the history of um, actually disenfranchisement. Um, people like to think America as a nation of immigrants, but uh, immigration historian Erica Lee at the University of Minnesota, for instance, calls America a gatekeeping nation. There has been a lot of different policies and immigration laws that has um, systematically barred Asian Americans from getting citizenship and rights, even though they were recruited as laborers. So for instance, Lucy, as you mentioned, um, by 19, 1882, there was Chinese Exclusion Act, which categorically uh, repealed all Chinese people from coming into the country, um, except for some exempt class, for instance, diplomats and um, wealthy merchants. And they were rendered ineligible for citizenship. And then there is an important thing called the Page Act that many um, Asian American scholars have been voicing in relation to this, um, the shooting in Atlanta. 
And the Page Act basically says that if you are a contracted Chinese laborer or um, a prostitute, you cannot enter into the United States. And what that actually did was to give this huge freedom for the immigration officers to just categorize Chinese women as of immoral character and that they might be suspect as um, a prostitute. So rather than thinking that these Chinese immigrants or Chinese women would be coming into the United States to fulfill their labor needs or to add and enrich this nation, these people were seen as people who will be um, changing American character negatively, and they will um, pollute the na nation's moral character. And then there is more continued things going on. For instance, um, history of violence against Chinese people, like the Rock Springs Massacre of 1885, where white immigrant miners just killed over 20 Chinese miners because they thought they were taking jobs from white miners, to Watsonville riots, which um, again, white um, Americans killed a lot of Filipinos because they thought they are tainting national spirit all the way to Japanese internment act um, that categorically um, incarcerated people of Japanese ancestry because they were perceived as dangerous and un-American. And I can go on, but the history shows that Asian Americans were con continually seen as un-American or problem Americans at best. You mentioned uh, internment. Uh, Glenn, I said at the top of the show, uh, your grandparents were interned at the uh, camp in Utah. And so this is very personal for you. Uh, it, it absolutely is, uh, Lucy. Uh, you know, their, their experience during the Second World War crystallizes this idea that Asian and Asian Americans are perpetual foreigners, right? That we're never really true Americans. Both my grandparents were born in San Francisco, raised there. They were attending school at the University of California. Um, but because the United States government and many of their fellow citizens in California refused to see them as anything other than the enemy, uh, they were dispossessed of their home, their possessions, and sent packing to, uh, to Topaz internment camp in, in Utah. They eventually made their way to, uh, to Michigan and, and never returned back to back to California. So, it, and I think it's also, it's not, uh, it's not irrelevant that the, the language of war, that this idea of being an enemy is such a common thing uh, throughout the history of the U.S. relationship, not only with Asian Americans, but with Asia abroad, beginning with the uh, Spanish-American and Filipino-American War through World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnamese, the Vietnam War. All of these conflicts helped to solidify an image of Asians as enemies as deserving violence. And even in recent years where we have the language of trade wars, uh, you know, I grew up in California in the 1980s and I remember very well the kind of discourse of the, the rising sun Japanese uh, economic threat and, uh, and what that meant for the, the, the murder of Vincent Chin. Um, and, then, uh, and then today, even outside of the coronavirus, we endured years of talk of trade wars with, with China. I think all of this language and the reality of war has made uh, Asian and Asian bodies targets, uh, literally painting targets on us uh, as legitimate subjects of, uh, of attack and, and violence.
Again, you're hearing Glenn Matoma from UConn. Uh, he is the director uh, of the Dodd Impact at UConn's Human Rights Institute. Nari Kim is with us, associate director at the Asian and Asian American Studies Institute at UConn, as we talk again about uh, this rise of anti-Asian hate incidents in our country. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. We're going to continue talking with our guests after the break. And if you are part of the Asian and American or Pacific Islander community in Connecticut, which has been growing in our state. We'd love to hear from you, too. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Some local communities in Connecticut held vigils this weekend to remember the eight people killed by a Georgia shooter last week. Six of the victims were women of Asian descent, including Hyun Jung Grant, a single mother of two children. Her son, Randy Park, created a GoFundMe page after her death, writing, It is only my brother and I in the United States. The rest of my family is in South Korea. We're talking about the increase in anti-Asian hate incidents in the U.S. with my guest, Nare Kim, Assistant Professor in Residence and Associate Director at the Asian and Asian American Studies Institute at UConn, and Glenn Matoma, Assistant Professor of Human Rights and Education and Director of Dodd Impact at UConn's Human Rights Institute. Uh, Nare, I wanted to go back to something that Shirley, who called in, mentioned about how this story has been framed out of uh, Georgia. Uh, according to police, the suspect in this shooting claimed he had a sex addiction and that he committed the shooting to, quote, eliminate temptation. At this point, we don't know if any of the victims at these businesses were sex workers. Uh, one of the spas had been targeted by prostitution stings by police in years past. Friends and family say that these spas did not provide sex work services. But again, this is what's all being reported out in the media. And I wanted you to talk about this framing. Does it dehumanize these shooting victims? Yes, absolutely. Um, this idea that um, the shooter attacked these people out of his sex addiction totally references his personal history that, ha that has to be contextualized in the larger history of sexualizing Asian women as sexual objects. And then, of course, um, what follows is that these women were then seen as this object of fear and hatred that has to be um, dealt with. Um, but historically, Asian women has been sexualized as um, submissive and at the service of white male. I mentioned Page Act of 1875 before the break, um, how um, America has characterized Chinese immigrants from the very beginning moment as people of immoral character. But as Glenn mentioned before, these um, America's encroachment to other countries um, during the Cold War, um, which actually was a hot war for many Asian countries, including um, Korea and Vietnam, led to the U.S. militarization um, in those countries. And that actually led to the development of sex work. Um, many women lost um, 
lost work and in exchange for money they had to resort to their body um, developed or militarized sexual brothels um, which also then led to a mass migration of asian american women and biracial children and these gis who have gone to asia to fight and have had this particular experience with asian women then bring back those images and in popular culture then was also um, that confirmed these images or imaginations of these women as dehumanized sexual objects. Um, There's so many examples like Miss Saigon, Full Metal Jacket, Charlie's Angels that continue to depict Asian women as sexually available, subservient, submissive, sometimes um, great, attractive, and some other times dangerous. Glenn, I'm wondering if you could weigh in on this, too, when we talk about, um, again, how this has been framed, when we look at how Asians have been depicted uh, in media, uh, also the way they've been treated in uh, this country. Uh, misogyny and racism are really intertwined in all of this. They are, absolutely. Uh, and, and I think it's it's important to note, right, that the, the question of whether or not uh, any of these sites provided sexual services or any of these women were sex, were sex workers is is um, is at once a, a question of how they want to be identified and, and and where they they would like their uh, you know their, their their memories to be enshrined, but also it's, it's a testament to the way in which that kind of work has been marginalized, not only with respect to kind of moral stigma, but really in a way that exposes the workers in uh, in massage parlors, um, whether they do or don't do sex work, to violence and assault. Right? We know that there's a tremendous amount of danger uh, by virtue of the criminalization and stigmatization of state sex work that all sex workers face, and in particular, sex workers uh, from, uh, um, from marginalized communities, uh, whether they be uh, immigrant communities or communities of color. And I think exactly what Nare has said, uh, you know, there's a long history with respect to Asian and Asian American women in particular. Uh, but specifically at this moment, I think it's essential to recognize that regardless of uh, what these women were doing in their place of work, they have the absolute right to fundamental dignity, to have control in their workplace, to be safe in their workplace, whether that's from a, a shooter like this or from, frankly, law enforcement. Enforcement, uh, conducting raids or immigration uh, enforcement, conducting raids in these spaces. So we really do need to think about how these things connect and interlock and to think about safety in ways that uh, respect the autonomy and dignity of each of these individuals um, wherever they're, they're, they're working. I mentioned the organization Stop Asian American Pacific Islander Hate that's been tracking these incidents in our country over the last year. Uh, they found Asian women targets of these racist attacks at higher rates than men. More than six in ten of the incidents were from women reporting anti-Asian hate incidents, uh, uh, Nare. So when we talk about, again, um, how women are perceived, Asian women are perceived, uh, this really... Um, puts them in a, in a vulnerable position. And then I'm wondering, you know, how do we, I guess, move from this in terms of changing these perceptions? And, and so these women are not fearful because of uh, long stereotypes. Thank you for that question. I think we, um, and as a scholar of literature and culture, we need more representation 
both in culture and cultural realm and in politics. Asian American women should not be seen as sexually available and sexually exploitable. Um, but that kind of imagery that has been perpetuated in the social media and that also the shooter and the reportings about the shooting continues to perpetuate has not been redressed enough. Um, we need to have um, more, more people who would be interested in hearing the stories by Asian American women. We need more classes, more education. Currently um, in Connecticut, we are preparing for SB 678, which calls for the rep which calls to include Asian Pacific American studies as part of the social studies curriculum to note that Asian American experience and history is a quintessential part of American history, that this is not an issue or a question that only pertains to narrow Asian American women or Asian American people, but to entirety of America is the first step to acknowledge that there is a diversity and heterogeneity of these Asian American people and women. Um, and also just um, to 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 actually commit to anti-racism, to learn that um, Asian American women has been racialized and sexualized in this way is the first step to actually, um, the first step for to acknowledge that is to identify um, that this racism has been happening and to unlearn what you identify is the first step to fight this sexualization and dehumanization of Asian American women. I'm glad you bring up the point about education. Uh, Quinn tweeted at us, in order to address anti-Asian violence, we need to consider integrating Asian American studies into secondary school education. And so you'd mentioned that there is a bill before the legislature to do just that. Uh, I wanted to take uh, some calls now. Uh, Mike's calling in from New Haven. Mike, go ahead. Hi, thank you guys for having me. I think this is a great topic. My question was... Um, you know, every time something happens uh, in the country, uh, there's a fear-mongering campaign. And so 9-11, Muslims were targeted. Uh, during coronavirus, Asian communities been targeted, and black people all the time targeted for fear-mongering campaigns. My question is, when do, when do we call out the people who are doing the fear-mongering and the reasons why they're doing it? And uh, just, I just heard you speak about education bills being pushed through to add uh, Asian-American studies to education. They're doing that now in some states uh, and there's a lot of pushback for um, African-American history. Uh, again, speaking to the folks that are pushing back and pushing the fear, when do we address those people? Thank you, Mike, for your question. Glenn, do you want to take that one? Sure, thank you. Uh, and thanks, Mike. Those are, those are really important questions. I think you're right, right? There needs to be some accountability. It's not an accident that we see these acts of violence uh, you know, coming on the heels of the, the, the virus. It's not a natural expression of people's concerns and fears to scapegoat uh, uh, racial minorities. And it's clearly been a deliberate strategy, particularly from uh, pol politicians and others who would benefit from, uh, from displacing uh, fear or concern or, or frankly, uh, recognition of their own mismanagement of the public health crisis of the coronavirus uh, to thrust it upon uh, on our communities. And I think we need uh, accountability for that, accountability at the ballot box, but also accountability in the public sphere. Uh, they shouldn't be given platforms to, uh, to do this fear mongering, and when they do, it should be countered with authentic voices from the, from the community. 
With respect to the the, the bill uh, integrating Asian American studies into secondary education, you know, as we know, coming on the heels of the successful campaign to um, uh, to begin offering African American and Latin American Puerto Rican studies in in high schools, it's a challenge. Uh, you know, uh, we're, we're we're in a year when every educator uh, across the state is stretched to the limit uh, to try and support the learning of our our students, um, but I. I don't think that that should be a, an excuse for taking on the hard task of rethinking fundamentally how we teach the history of this country, who we are in this so-called we the people. And while these bills are, are, are coming through, in addition to this year's uh, uh, legislation on Asian American history, there's also one on Native American history. I think these are absolutely essential for beginning the difficult task of re-narrating that story of our common past. And, and I recognize it's a lot and there's pushback, so we need to offer support and funding and additional training and additional resources uh, to those educators who are being asked to do this uh, and, 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 to, uh, and to make that a priority along with all the other uh, necessary investments we need to make in our educational system. Anare, I wanted to go back to you. Before I took the call, you had mentioned uh, the importance of uh, anti-racist uh, work uh, in talking about uh, different communities that um, have been targeted. But what are ways to build solidarity? Because so often when these uh, situations happen, it feels like groups are pitted against one another. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that. Um, yeah, thanks for that important question. Solidarity is absolutely essential to, um, as Glenn mentioned, to reiterate what America is and who America are, is. Um, what is really different for um, this incident is that there has been a lot of um, non-Asian Americans who were voicing for um, the rights and the safety of Asian Americans and who were criticizing this um, racist rhetoric in um, forming this and thinking through this um, incident. Um, historically, there has been a lot of Black and Asian solidarity movements. Like, for instance, in 1960s, there was Third World Liberation Front that um, of Black and Asian and other students of color who came together to demand ethnic studies courses in um, California. Um, there's many activists who work together. And I think, frankly, with the BLM, Asian Americans have been voicing, they, they have been um, voicing out that this is an issue that is important for all Americans to acknowledge. And similarly, um, there has been many um, non-Asian Americans who were voicing, raising their voices for the Atlanta shooting. Um, and the reason that I enumerated historical and present examples is to redress the myth that the solidarity is difficult or that it has not existed because those solidarity has existed and it is possible. However, the way the white supremacy and racial hierarchy works in the United States is to make those efforts invisible as if those solidarity um, is just too difficult for us to achieve. And that is perpetuating because it is essential um, in dismantling white supremacy and um, and racist structure in the United States. Um, so everyone, all minorities, and also non-minorities in America needs to come together to acknowledge that America has racial structure and that everyone can benefit by addressing it head on. 
That's an important point. I had mentioned earlier, I was uh, heartened to see local communities in our state, uh, different communities holding vigils related to this uh, incident, not only in Georgia, but the fact that uh, with attention that incidents against uh, Asian Americans and others have been rising, the importance of uh, speaking up that this is not um, behavior or acceptable, uh, that's important, Glenn. It is absolutely, and I, I would agree with Nare that, it, you know, in, in many respects, we're, we're, we can build on the su success of the Black Lives Matter movement. We saw in the wake of the murder of George Floyd an unprecedented outpouring of multiracial allies um, coming to the streets and communities all over Connecticut, all over the country, and all over the world. And I think in this moment, the uh, falling back on those resources, those connections, that solidarity that ha has already been built up will allow us to not fall back into invisibility as we have so many times before and to make sure this is a truly multiracial um, anti-racist coalition that can uh, that can put for real change across our country and across our state. Glenn Matoma again as a director of Dot Impact at UConn's Human Rights Institute also with us Nare Kim who is the associate director at the Asian and Asian American Studies Institute at UConn. Thank you both for your time today we really appreciate it. Thank you so much for this important conversation. It's great to be here. Thanks, Lucy. Coming up, we hear from Connecticut's Attorney General William Tong. What can state and federal authorities do to tackle this rise in hate? You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We've been talking about the rise of anti-Asian hate incidents in our country. Joining us now on Zoom is Connecticut's Attorney General, William Tong. Welcome back to the show. Good morning, Lucy. I was surprised uh, when I looked back uh, the last time you were on, we talked about this very topic, anti-Asian racism and xenophobia exacerbated during the COVID pandemic. That was in last May. Uh, back then you told me, quote, this is what happens when you foment hate and give people license to hate and act out on their hate. People die. Back then you were referring to former President Donald Trump's rhetoric. He's gone now, but we're seeing these hate incidents continuing to be a problem. Why do you think that is? Well, because the effects of it are long lasting. There's, there's a reason why we were talking about this a year ago, and we've talked about it long before then. Right after President Trump was elected, there was a spike in hate crimes in Connecticut um, and across the country of more than 20%. And I was part of the legislative team that strengthened our state's hate crimes laws. And then uh, President Trump declared war on America's immigrants and said that he was going to denaturalize American citizens, immigrant American citizens, like our parents. Um, and he was going after the uh, native-born American citizen children of, of immigrants, um, so-called anchor babies like me. And so this attack on, on immigrants, on people of color, on women, um, on urban communities, um, this is what happens when you do that, when you give license to hate and, and you call people a virus and, and you call the coronavirus the China virus or the Kung flu, you give them voice and license to act. And, and then 
places like Charlottesville erupt in and now Atlanta, Georgia, and people not only get hurt, they get killed. Most residents know you're Chinese American. Personally, when you heard about what happened in Atlanta, eight killed in these shootings, six of them women of Asian descent, how did that affect you? Well, it's very scary because I, I think Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders across the country feel like we have a target on our backs, um, as if we're being hunted. And um, it's beyond scary and disconcerting to go out uh, and and worry about whether somebody's going to target you because of who you are and and your last name. Um, I think what's um, even more disappointing is that people express their surprise to me that this is happening. They can't believe that people are targeting uh, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders and um, of course, we know that this is a fact of life for people like us, that um, the history of racism um, and, and hate crimes against Asian Americans across this country is a long history and legacy. Going back to the beating death of Vincent Chin, a lot of people don't know that history, the Chinese Exclusion Act, and, and of course, um, one of the worst injustices ever committed on American soil and that's the internment of 125,000 Japanese American citizens in camps on American soil. You want to talk about separating children from their families uh, in camps on American soil. We did it a little more than 75 years ago to 125,000 American citizens, all of Asian American descent, because we were blaming them and scapegoating them for Pearl Harbor. Whenever there are shootings, that garners media attention and people tend to uh, talk about it. But when we think about these unprovoked attacks on Asian Americans, there have been a wave of them, especially in the Bay Area in California. There were some in New York City, elderly Asian residents being attacked. Do you think there's some type of copycat effect happening here? What, like we see with when there are school shootings, why is there this continued uh, space of attacks over the last few weeks? Well, I, I do think that there are copycat attacks, but copycat sort of sounds like a one-off person um, here and there. What we're seeing is a sustained increase, 150% um, uh, increase in hate-related and bias-related attacks against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders uh, in the past year, more than 800% in New York City alone. And and just this year, you know, we're barely into 2021. There have been more than 500 incidents um, reported. I, I do think, Lucy, it has to do with the stereotypes and, and the hate and discrimination that Asian Americans feel all the time. The, the stereotypes that Asian Americans are quiet or, or meek, um, or that, you know, that we're bookish. Um, these stereotypes um, are not only wrong uh, and, and racist, but um, they put us at even greater risk. And of course, um, there are the stereotypes about Asian American women, which makes Asian American women especially vulnerable. The stereotypes that Asian American women are themselves um, submissive or, um, of course, Asian American women are highly objectified 
in modern culture and media um, um, through a racist lens, people see them as exotic. They're, they're over-sexualized. And, and I just don't think it's an, an accident, of course, that they were targeted in Atlanta because these stereotypes make people unsafe. These racist ideas, this hate makes people unsafe. And, and again, as I said before, puts a target on their backs. So what tools are there to address this issue right now? I know last year when we spoke, you talked about a bill or an effort to get a civil rights division in your Connecticut Attorney General office. What's the latest there? Yeah, so we're pushing that very hard. And that bill, Section 1, uh, explicitly empowers uh, me and the Office of the Attorney General to enforce our state's hate crimes laws, the very laws that I strengthened when I was in the legislature in 2017. And so we need robust civil rights enforcement here in Connecticut. Some people would be surprised to hear that we don't have that already. And the answer is we don't. Um, and our attorney general's office has not um, until now um, had the opportunity or the authority to take on this work and to vindicate the civil rights of people across our state and to enforce our state's hate crimes laws. We also need a stronger partner in the Department of Justice um, to say that that Donald Trump gutted the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division would be a massive understatement. They've essentially done nothing for um, the past four years. And finally, we have a partner in Washington, but we don't yet have um, leaders of that division yet. We need to confirm Vanita Gupta as the number three at justice. We need to confirm Kristen Clark as head of the civil rights division. The other thing I wanna say, Lucy, and this is incredibly important, I think it's finally time to acknowledge um, the far reaching effects of, of this hate and how deep seated it is um, in our country against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. Unfortunately, um, I think being an Asian American in this country means that you're invisible in the discussion that we're having now about race and racism. I, I've actually been asked, do you even count as a person of color? I was asked that on the floor of the House of Representatives during a debate. Um, and, and, you know, it's not just objectionable, it's absurd. Um, you know, our immigrant experience uh, and the experience of Asian Americans as people of color. Many of us live in urban centers and in urban communities. Um, many of us struggle with access to good jobs and, and education like everybody else. And, and many of us struggle with uh, racism and discrimination in, in the workplace and in schools. And, and so it's, it's well past time to really have a national discussion about Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, in the context of how racism really hurts our community and prejudices our community. Having legal remedies is one thing, but your anecdote about someone asking if you if you were a person of color is really striking. There's also a movement here in Connecticut to teach Asian and Pacific Islander history. Is that something that we need to see, Attorney General Tong? Yes, because um, a lot of that history is is, is at risk of being lost. And I'm really proud that um, the legislature, when I was in the legislature, we stepped forward and made sure that 
Connecticut students learned about the Holocaust and the legacy of anti-Semitism and hate crimes against the Jewish community, um, that we teach the history of African-Americans and our Latinx brothers and sisters. Um, but there's so much history about Asian-Americans and Pacific Islanders. You know, Lucy, there was a Chinese-American in Connecticut who fought on behalf of the Union in the Civil War um, from Meriden. And people don't know that history and how far back it goes. Um, and they don't know that up until 1967, my family um, could not lawfully immigrate to this country because of the Chinese Exclusion Act. 1967, mm -hmm. you know, that wasn't that long ago. And, and, and of course, uh, as I said before, a, a lot of people that I'm shocked that they don't know this, they don't know about World War II, the War of Japanese Aggression, um, which uh, ended in the, 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 the killing and murder of more than 12 million Chinese and Koreans uh, across Asia and um, the, the legacy of Japanese internment uh, and the internment of American citizens in camps on American soil. Hmm. Well, that's why we're going to keep talking about it. Uh, William Tong is Connecticut's Attorney General. We thank you for joining us here on the show. Thank you. Today's show is produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>